0: This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders, with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Digital Walkheaders? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. with up, Colin? What's going on, man? We've
1: been busy. Yeah, I've been busy. Busy with accountants, attorneys, none of the fun stuff.
0: None of the fun stuff? Why can't we go do some cool stuff?
1: I know. Well, I'm
0: going to Denver next month for yeah, her tech, you, get to, so. you get to have all of the fun. I'll be in New Mexico. You'll be in Denver. Yeah. New Mexico sucks. It up. So. Hey, no.
2: hey. Watch
0: it.
1: Sorry for anyone
0: I just offended, but it is what it is. So we're sitting here with uh, Rachel Alney, CEO and founder of Geosite. Also
2: from New Mexico.
1: Oh, also from New Mexico. Mexico. So we're at, we're watch at New Mexico, New though. New Mexico
2: shade. <laughs> we're at, though. Southern New Mexico. Okay,
1: so my only beef is with eastern New Mexico, like Hobbs-type area, you know, where the oil field's at. It's, it's not a nice place, so dosa is nice. No, I like those parts of New Mexico, so <laughs> don't take offense to it. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about GeoSight and what you guys are doing, just kind of at a high level.
2: Yeah, at a really high level, GeoSight is essentially a enterprise software meant for spatial data. We first came up with the idea working with the US military. And then from there, we started to realize there were a lot of other industries that had a lot of logistics and planning issues and really distributed operations and a sensitivity to risk that mirrored the military. And so we started to look at other industries. And of course, oil and gas, you know, became our focus on the commercial side. But ultimately, what we're most excited about is that we've been able to form partnerships with all of the largest satellite companies. And so there's been, you know, increased interest in using a lot of these assets for you know detection and monitoring of remote assets but a lot of times for people who are outside of the space industry it's really hard to know what data is out there and what information might be helpful and what analytics might be helpful and there's a really steep learning curve and what we've managed to do is create a software that automatically brings that data to people and so you know when we talk about our company we talk about it as being both a a marketplace and a management tool for spatial data. And so that's everything from satellite imagery to drone imagery to remote sensing imagery. You know, one of the things we've started to build in is, you know, our customers are able to put their IoT platforms on there as well. So whether that's having, you know, a visual representation of their SCADA systems, the ability to see their GPS trackers, their monitoring systems, all of that, you know, on a single common operating picture was, was the ultimate goal.
0: Okay, so for the oil and gas companies, what, is the, what are they really using the geospatial data for, from, from what you found?
2: Yeah, so there are, you know, three use cases. You know, one that I think is just a bit of my own vanity, thinking people care about space. The other two are, are the actual applications. The first is the ability to actually use satellite imagery without okay. having to understand it, right, like I mentioned. But the two really, really important applications are both around the ability to create better plans actually knowing what's happening in areas without having to actually be there, right? Okay. So the ability to look out, see new roads that haven't been mapped, see things that you know you didn't know were there, being able to monitor competition, being able to better leverage assets and, and optimize planning. As part of that, it's the ability to coordinate with your team on those plans. And so right now, a lot of the software that's available for people to work on anything spatial is built for engineers. You know, it's things like Esri or it's other, you know, mapping and planning tools that you might have one or two people at the organization who know how to use and they become kind of the funneling point for the information, which means that that information gets distilled down and information gets lost before it reaches the other people who might need to use (laughs) it. And so creating a system that is extremely intuitive and is meant for non-engineers gives more people at the organization access to that information throughout more of the process, right? And so you have less stuff falling through the cracks. And because of our work with the military, we, of course, have really granular Ability to segment out who can see what information, right? Which becomes really important in the oil and gas industry where you have a lot of contractors. You have a lot of people who might be working on one project but not other ones, right? They might know about, you know, well, A, B, and C, but not D, E, and F. And so you need to be able to organize people among those projects. The second part is there is a rapid increase in the number of distributed sensors that people are using, whether that's tracking systems, you know, various monitoring systems that now are reporting back rather than just staying local in terms of the information. And each of those data sets right now are going into their own platforms. At best, it might be a visual platform, but it's a standalone platform for that one sensor. At worst, it's feeding into an Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh Which, you know, great, we'll color code it. That'll help us tell what's going on, but it's still an Excel spreadsheet. And that data is much more relevant when you see it spatially combined with other information that's happening. And so the second real use case is as people are deploying more and more information collection systems, the ability to bring that together is really what we're all about. And so for our company, there were two things that we decided really early on. We would never create data and we would never provide analytics. And part of that was we wanted to make sure that we didn't compete with anybody that our customers would need us to partner with. So if we started actually collecting our own data, if we started producing sensors, things like that, and then providing the dashboard on top of it, we couldn't necessarily let the customers onboard any data they possibly wanted to use. And so it's this ability to aggregate data from these different sources, which is, is the second piece, which allows these companies to better see what's going on, to you know remove redundant equipment and people from the field because they can actually tell what's going on. They can mm-hmm. optimize the resources that they have in the field.
0: So for you guys, it's more of a, if I understand it correctly, more of a data management play Aggregating everything from the deep data cells, but with such a heavy emphasis on the geospatial data, correct?
2: Yeah, exactly. And part of that is that, you know, there have been a lot of studies lately that show 80% of data has a spatial component. So ultimately, most of these data sets are spatially referenced, even if it is stationary, right? And being able to look at that in context to other data sets that aren't stationary or that may be changing, like the rest of the landscape, is really important. And so, yeah, it's it's spatial data aggregation. Okay.
1: This is a really specific question, but have you guys seen any mineral funds in oil and gas that are using satellite imaging or any type of spatial data to monitor rigged? Rate- out and rig activity to see where the rigs are moving to? Have you guys seen your platform being used for that?
2: So our platform hasn't. There are a lot of analytics companies that are starting to provide some of those insights where I would say that information combined with ours becomes interesting is, you know, we work with an analytics company called CrowdAI and they're able to basically look at the entire Permian Basin or anywhere else and say, okay, here are all the places where equipment is showing up. You know, we can show notifications of stuff is here, stuff is not. Here's what, you know, the the models are showing is, you know, fracking versus non-fracking. Here is like the different types of activities that are going on. And those sorts of algorithms are really specifically trained for, for different applications. But what happens is you want to be able to combine that with your own proprietary information, your own information about, you know, who owns what. You want to be able to combine it with parcel data. You want to be able to combine it with visual data so you can verify those analytics that you're getting. And so it's really once people want to combine that analytics data with actual operations that it becomes really interesting and that ability to share that data out safely.
0: Okay. So you guys aren't providing any kind of are you is there any kind of visualizations? I know you say didn't Yeah.
2: Okay. Absolutely. So
0: there's visualizations, but there's not analytics.
2: Correct. Okay. So so most of the outcomes <clears throat> of these analytics our visualizations, right? Uh-huh. And so, you know, they end up being boxes around things or they end up being, you know, heat maps or or, you know, counts over certain areas. That sort of stuff could be displayed visually, right? And so if you're displaying that visually and you're also displaying, okay, here's where our people are, here's what we're doing, you can start to associate these data sets a lot faster because it's all in one place rather than looking across different platforms and trying to correlate all of that data in your head. Humans mm-hmm. are pretty bad
1: at (laughs) statistics
2: and math and a lot of things that computers are very good at so every time Every time I see somebody trying to like combine these data sets in their head, I'm just like, oh, this is a recipe for disaster. So so trying to avoid that.
1: Absolutely. So we got introduced to you by one of our friends from Cathexis. He said, hey, you got to talk to Rachel. Extremely smart. Be a great fit for the show. Let's talk about you for a minute and your background. So you're from the Bay Area or you're from New Mexico, but you live in the Bay Area now. Where did you go to school?
2: Yeah, so... You know, actually, I, I hold something against Houston. Here we go. Now I'll
1: <laughs> it. Oh, it's your man. turn to take a shot now. We have a lot of Houston listeners on this show, oh, so I'd be man. careful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> go for it. I
2: mean it. <laughs> so so how did I end up in the Bay Area was a function of I applied to, you know, all the top schools. There's only one I didn't get into. What well, school? I mean. Rice? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got all the other ones. I was like, come on. Come on, guys. Really? But maybe it turned out. It turned out okay, right? So I got my bachelor's and master's at Stanford, both mechanical engineering. At the time, I had started to work really heavily with the military. As my senior capstone and undergrad worked on a wearable light for UH-60 Black Hawk pilots who were flying with night vision goggles Went on from there. I kind of ended up with a reputation as being the person who spoke both military and nerd. And so they every time, you know, they'd bring delegations to Stanford.
0: Let's let's unpack this a little bit. You yeah. were just like, yeah, I just started working with the military. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's, and right, all of a sudden I'm like the go to expert. Okay, so wait, how did how does that happen? Does Stanford so there, just pair you up with like military people, or were you I just mean, like? hanging out at the bases, <laughs> talking to people. So
2: there, there are probably like three compounding things here, right? So the first is I grew up in Southern New Mexico, right? My mom was, you know, had two engineering degrees, electrical and ceramics engineering. And so I grew up going to missile range, right? So for me, driving onto a base where there's like a machine gun pointed at you just feels very normal <laughs> to me. Yep. Like, a, little bit, a little bit desensitized <laughs> to that, maybe. And so when I got to Stanford, a lot of the projects that were available just weren't super exciting to me. It was a lot of, you know, what I would call nice-to-haves, right? And I always felt very compelled by national security. And so I always wanted to work on projects that, you know, I felt really driven to work on, which, you know, became part of this company, of course. And, you know, the other other two factors are I think people don't realize just how involved in national security Stanford is, right? Both Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense under Obama, and Secretary Mattis, they both came from Stanford. Right. And so there's a lot of activity there with the military. And the third, of course, I had access to UH-60 pilots. My husband flew UH-60. So I was like, great, <laughs> I'll like give you guys this technology. He was, you know, he had this, you know, they call it finger lights that you wear when you're flying. And I was like, this is garbage technology. And so <laughs> I just started making stuff for him and his friends. And it, you know, went from there. <laughs> so so I kept getting pulled into to all sorts of projects after that point. And so ended up getting linked up with, you know, special operations teams and cyber command and a bunch of other stuff was going on. And that's actually how I ended up doing my PhD, which was still in the engineering department, but was much more work theory. It was for cyber command and the NSA. And it was innovation in necessarily bureaucratic and hierarchical organizations. So if you have a large organization where you need bureaucracy, you need hierarchy, because it's really dangerous. Like, People can get hurt, laws can get broken, there's a sensitivity to risk, and yet you need to bring in new technology and you need to enable engineers to do new things and take those risks while also managing that risk, right? And it was a really, really fascinating PhD, and I got to work on a bunch of other projects in the meantime, and that's actually where I ended up coming up with the idea for the company, was I was working with the special operations team. In the past, I had already worked on a study with the Air Force on what the space industry looked like. They ended up having a casualty due to their inability to pull together different data sets, right? They have access to exquisite data, but if it's in different silos, being able to pull that together really rapidly and correlate different information can be really difficult. And so I got a little bit angry, to put it lightly. I was kind of fed up and I was like, this is 75% of bureaucracy problem, 75% A, people not playing nice and putting data into one platform issue, and it's 25% of technology problem. And I realized, huh. be the right person to work on this since I've literally studied bureaucracy and know enough about technology to be dangerous. And so, yeah, that's that's basically where it started. Our very first contract was with Special Operations Command. And then from there, you know, we, we work with the Air Force really heavily now on bringing together data sets. And yeah, it's been pretty exciting.
1: So when you, you know, obviously this is kind of what brings you into starting GeoSight, Are you a sole founder or did you have a co-founding team when you kind of started bringing this all together?
2: Yeah. So there were a lot of people that contributed to starting this company. I did end up being a solo founder, not necessarily on purpose, just, you know, things kept moving and suddenly I had funding and I was building the team. But in the early stages, there was an active duty SEAL at Stanford who was getting his MBA. And he was like, you know, he had reached out to one of his friends who's a ranger there and was like, hey, you know. I want to do something that's actually going to make an impact in my last year in my MBA program who's doing things that are going to like last that aren't just school projects and he was like ah you have to find Rachel <laughs> and sure enough at the time I was just starting to to think about okay I'm going to leverage my skill set to start something that will both have a national security impact as well as a commercial impact which industry is most broken right now how can I help push technology forward and so so he worked on it with me for about the first year. And of course as an MBA student he was helping me, you know, go through all of the run through the numbers of different industries and make sure the total addressable markets made sense that you know, the cocktail TVs made sense that that this could actually be a profitable business. And so that was extremely helpful early on and then now he's off commanding somewhere and and it's it's always great having had him around because I mean, this is my first time running something, right? I've never run a tech company. I've never led a team of more than you know maybe three, and even then, it's like very informal leadership, just on class projects sort of thing. <laughs> and so, I was able to spend a lot of time with him, being like, okay. How do I make sure that I'm driving my team and pushing them but not overwhelming them or draining them or burning them out and how do I deal with delegation when I'm completely task saturated, right? And so it was it was wonderful having him around to kind of give me give me that sort awesome. of training.
1: So what year was it when you kind of started commercializing
2: GeoSight and So putting really it together? really just this year is when we started looking at commercial markets, right? So our our first contract with Special Operations Command was last year, about a year ago. And then we just signed two contracts with the Air Force this year, which is really exciting. We're actually going to be putting our technology in people's hands and letting them use it rather than just just looking at it and thinking about it and developing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a big difference there. And then, you know, once I felt like that was stable and, you know, we had started to make the impact that I was excited about, it was time to, to select the next industry. And I ended up picking oil and gas, you know, based on a couple of things. I think this industry is ready to adopt technology. If you look at other industries like real estate or insurance, they're not there yet. It's still only hype and i think oil and gas is right on that cusp of flipping over to people really deploying a lot of amazing things and part of that is i think that the average age of decision makers in oil and gas has decreased rapidly and so there are people that are really excited about technology who people are letting actually take those risks and try new things out and the other reason is if you think about the actual like process that oil and gas especially emp companies go through it's very similar to the military, there's a set of latitudes and longitudes that they care about. There are, you know, lots of different people involved in a plan. You know, the plan is changing. You have, you know, version control. You need everybody to be on the same page. You need to be able to communicate. You need to stay updated. You know, minutes or hours can really matter. Mm-hmm. And so so that was one of the other reasons is realizing it would be a similar application and product in the very beginning.
1: Yeah, you're spot on with your assessment. This is a common theme that we talk about on the show all the time is the great crew change, you know, just the average age of decision makers coming down. So did you have any exposure to oil and gas beforehand?
2: No. My first exposure to oil and gas was showing up to nape. Nice. I was like, I'm just gonna jump in the deep end. <laughs> this will be fine. And luckily I went to summer nape, and so it wasn't quite as insane. Yeah. And so I just kept walking up to like all the booths and being like, what does this mean? What does this mean? <laughs> and I just like, I think the the one thing I did is I realized this industry is so much more complex than I can possibly get up that learning curve right away. And so it was important to me to immediately surround myself with people who who could help translate the technology and who could help me figure out what I needed to know and could coach me and mentor me. And the fact that I don't mind asking questions that might seem kind of silly to people who have been in the industry a long time, purely because it's not my industry. And I'm trying to learn what the needs are so I can, so I can help solve them. I think, I mean, my my core thing is, if I can figure out how to solve problems in the world's most bureaucratic, hierarchical, you know, risk, you know, adverse and high-stakes environment, I, you know, this, this is probably a next good step.
1: Well, that's a good point that you brought up about just kind of being… You know, dropping your ego and asking those questions and being willing to learn because there are a lot of companies that have emerging technology outside of oil and gas that want to integrate into oil and gas, but they just don't have the knowledge of the industry. And one of the problems is, is that if you come in with an arrogant attitude and you try to think that you know everything, the industry is not going to react well to you. But what I tell everyone is that oil and gas is a very helpful industry. If you ask people questions and you're sincere and willing to learn, a lot of people will help out. You know, I talked to a lady on the phone two weeks ago out in LA, and she just started with some type of HSC consulting company in oil and gas. And she's like, I've been here for a month. I'm trying to learn about oil and gas. And I was like, okay, are you guys focused on upstream, midstream, downstream? And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, okay, we have... You have a long ways yeah. to go to teaching, you yeah. know, this I mean, is that's a very... where I
2: was in the beginning, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, and everyone
1: is. And, you know, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around how big oil and gas as a whole is. And so it can kind of be overwhelming too. But as long as you're, you know, just willing to drop your ego and learn and ask questions, be humble, you know, yeah, there's nothing that yeah. nobody can learn. So...
2: I mean, I like being in the deep end of the pool, so I didn't mind. I was like, I'm just going to show up here and I'm going to know nothing and I'm going to ask a ton of <laughs> questions and then maybe I'll know something.
1: Nave's a good time, you know, there's a lot of helpful people there. So how did you guys, how did you identify, you know, obviously you talked about insurance, real estate, oil and gas. How did you go about, you know, what was your process for identifying, hey, oil and gas is an industry that we should look at? And how did you kind of dive deeper into that?
2: Yeah. So it was some of those those factors I talked about earlier, but Beyond that, it was that, you know, I took the time before starting the company to do a ton of research, right? I already knew the geospatial industry really well. I knew what I thought the future there looked like in terms of not just space, but drones, especially once non-line of sight regulations change. But I spent time talking to tons of people in each of these industries and then, you know, being really, really deliberate about laying out exactly what was going on in those industries, what sorts of technologies were being introduced, you know, what both like the public rhetoric was and what people who were actually on the ground were using. And really just trusted the people who were in those industries to help guide me on okay, this is what stage the industry's in, this is what's going on, this is what people care about right now. And so really it was just a lot of listening. I had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with people from all of these industries and tried to piece together, you know, which one I thought would allow us to to both succeed as a company, but also and well, part of that is succeed by just creating one product in the beginning. One thing that especially in you know the technology industry we see a lot is companies that try to boil the ocean they're yeah. like so it's not even just you know coming in and not asking questions about oil and gas but it's also trying to do oil and gas and insurance and real estate and agriculture and defense and all of these industries at once which means they never get deep enough with any one industry to truly understand what people need and so they end up bringing creating products that are so general, they're not really useful to anybody. Instead of doing one thing really well, they do a lot of things. We've know? seen
0: that time and time again of yeah. just different companies, especially from Silicon Valley, they come in and, and they, they provide a very, very general product to, I mean, look at like Spotfire, for example. It's something that has to be customized so heavily for every oil and gas company. I mean, now they have a little bit more of an oil and gas division these days, but mm-hmm. it's something that is requires a lot of massaging to make it a little bit more useful. You know, we've seen that time and time again. So you hit the nail on the head with that. Absolutely.
1: I think that's good general advice for any tech startup or any company as a whole. Don't yeah. try to pull a lotion and find find your niche and you just stick gotta, to be,
0: it. gotta be an inch wide and a mile deep, not a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. Because you're not getting anything. You're just a Walmart. Well, and right? Especially
2: yeah. in the beginning. Especially yeah. in the beginning. When you have a small team, no matter how smart that team is there are only so many hours in the day, mm-hmm. and and you can only learn so much at a time, and so you can't, you're just never gonna get to that depth. Once you're a bigger company, you can start to have lots of different verticals, but those are essentially different teams, yeah. right? And so you, you can't be across all of them with one team. I
0: mean, how can you build out the product? I mean, it's hard enough to build a product in one industry and really understand the needs of you know what, what? What is the what is the value proposition? What's the what's the business offering for that? But if you're trying to tackle like six different industries and trying to build a product for each one of those, you have pretty much six different development teams, six different support teams. That's yeah. very very expensive. But it doesn't really make sense, <laughs> honestly. So how long did that whole process take of you just kind of evaluating different industries before you decided to dive into to oil and gas?
2: Well, so for that process, so I would say. The idea for this company has been kind of beating me over the head since 2016, and I didn't really realize it. That was when I first did the study for the Air Force on what was happening in the space industry, had kind of dropped it. I mean, at that point, we had studied, you know, each of the industries that the space industry was touching. But, you know, like I said, kind of dropped it from there. I spent about nine months just doing market research. I mean, the good thing was I was in school at the time. You know, it wasn't like I couldn't spend that time doing it. And so you know, it was nine months of just iterating, being like, oh, I think I think it needs to be a marketplace, right? And then we went out, and people would be like, well, I don't even know what I'm looking for, right? I'd be like, oh, well, you know, you have Digital Globe, you have Planet, you have Airbus, you have all these things, and they're like, Google doesn't have the satellites? And I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay, this isn't just about getting access to the data. It's also about helping people, like lowering that barrier to entry for people to use new data types, right? And mm-hmm. so that was the first insight. And then the next one was, wow, this data is really exquisite, but actually people don't even have a coordination platform. People don't even have a place to put the information, even if we can give it to them, where their entire organization can use it, right? And so it was it was a series of insights as we talked to each of these industries, and it was over the course of nine months, and it was really drilling down what the needs were in each of those, and we still have that data, right? And we're going to continue to check back with it to see what we want to do about other industries well in the future, but for us, you know, once we got down into it with, you know, a few really great people who were spending a lot of time with me, walk me through, OK, here's exactly how from an idea all the way to production, you know, a well comes to be. Right. And And being able to map out that entire process that I was able to say, OK. This is the actual product that will produce value. This will actually make people more efficient. It will drive cost savings. It will create efficiency, right? It will decrease the amount of time it takes to get the well of production. It will actually create value. Hence, I can charge for that value, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and that's the essence of business. You can't charge people if you're not generating value for them. And so, so yeah, it took, it took a while. I think it it takes time, especially if it's not a home industry. Whereas with the defense side, I had spent Time with these teams. And so I knew, okay, here's what their process looks like. Here's what's broken. Here are the bureaucratic and political things at play. Here's how we're going to handle them. And so that was a a much quicker answer.
1: Mm -hmm. So moving forward, are you guys going to be focused on one industry over the other? Are you going to attack the military and oil and gas industry simultaneously? How does that kind of look?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the government takes a long time to do anything. So Um, does the oil business. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Really, I didn't start to ramp up our focus in oil and gas until we had those first major contracts mm-hmm. in the military and we had those, you know, all of the requirements scoped out and we knew what we were doing and we knew who our partners were. And so now that that ball's rolling, I'm like, okay, I've given that the big push. It has some inertia behind it. I'm going to put team members, you know, to keep, you know, keep it moving. And and essentially my entire focus then shifted over to oil and gas and to commercial applications. And that's you know that's been a very deliberate choice, and it's been something that I've spent a lot of time talking to many advisors about. Right? Yeah. Hey, you know, I think that what we're building is applicable about across all these different industries. I feel like I have to be the one who is on the ground myself to make sure. Right? I can't just hire somebody in all these different industries and be like, hey, figure out how our technology applies. Right? Because we'll end up with, you know, six different products instead of one. Mm-hmm. And even though that product will have different applications on top of it, it's important to to know the broader vision without just, you know, building features, right? And so, yeah, most of my almost my entire focus has shifted over now now that our our government stuff is kind of on track and and with those sorts of contracts, you once they're going, you just have to do, you know, an excellent job. And then, you know, once you've proved that out, then you move to the next step. It's very stepwise. It's not mm-hmm. not a linear process. And so so that leaves that space and that room for my focus to shift, which is great.
1: Is there any kind of stigma being in the Bay Area, being a tech company that's focused on oil and gas? Have you ever ran into anything that's kind of been, you know, people <laughs> sticking up their nose to you?
2: Yeah, Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean absolutely. But I mean, there are all sorts of things that are very unusual about me. So that's not just the only <laughs> <one>. <laughs> um, I mean, it's also very strange to be like a female solo founder of a tech company, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, for sure. So there there are plenty of reasons that people end up confused. No, I I definitely there was an investor who they didn't say this to me, they said it to somebody else who then like came to me and was like, Oh my gosh, Rachel, I had to control myself and not freak out at this person. As they were they were saying, Oh, there's this deal, there's you know, they're raising their round, it's gonna, you know, they're closing it. Like, I think you should look at it. And he was like, Uh, don't they work with the military and oil and gas? Yeah. I wanna work with companies that make the world a better place. And I was just like, Cool. <laughs> okay. So you like to sleep in your bed safe at night and you like to, you know, have really cheap products around you and be able to drive your car and heat your house for really inexpensive, you know. And yet, no, you you don't think these industries are important. So I think sometimes, you know, it's If you've only had one view of the world, it's hard to tell where these industries actually circle back. Mm -hmm. And so I try to try to be patient and empathetic. But yeah, definitely. It's it's funny. Here I'll just straight up say oil and gas, and then there I'll say energy. Energy. (laughs) Because then, of course, in their mind, they're only thinking, you know, windmills and and solar.
1: Renewables and and yeah.
2: (laughs) And I'm like, that's fine. You can make whatever assumptions you want. It'll work out.
1: (laughs) It is. You know, I can't remember who asked this question the other day, but I heard it on a panel or something. I can't remember. And the question was, do you believe it's ethical to work in oil and gas? And I just think it's such a funny question. You know, anyone that's outside the industry that would ask that to someone that's working in oil and gas, because there's a direct correlation with having access to cheap energy and having, you know, being a first world country.
0: Yeah, you, you, know, can, <laughs> you, you literally cannot have, look at every single third world country if you do not have the natural resources to provide
1: for that country. You do not have a or, or the ability Or the ability to extract them and yeah. produce them. So it's always... And,
2: and beyond that, I mean, one thing I always talk about, this is something I got very well practiced talking about with the military, and now I'm starting to learn to articulate as I learn more about oil and gas, is the difference between cutting with a sharper adult knife, right? Like, do you want to be able to do this more efficiently? Do you want to do this, be able to do this while you take people out of harm's way, right? Like, the less people... You know, the oil and gas industry is sitting out of the field, the less accidents there are, the, you know, people are safer if there's better equipment, if there's better transparency into what's going on. If if you have alert systems, if you are able to run cleaner operations in both of these industries, right? You drive down the cost of that total industry, you keep people safer. And so even if it's not just about the industry, it's about more granular aspects of it. It, it just makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, talking to investors and closing out yells round. Did the majority of Yale's investors come from the Bay Area or did you have any that were, you know, Houston, Dallas, Austin, based that were focused on willing guess?
2: Yeah. So we had, because we were coming into raising our seed round already, you know, closing out government contracts, we weren't in a, oh my gosh, if we don't raise, we're going to die mm-hmm. sort of situation, which was very nice. And so I sat back and thought about what is it that I need to add to my team? Right. And it came down to four things. I need people who can help me recruit talent. I need people who can do, you know, baby CEO training, people who have run tech companies and taught other people how to run tech companies. And then I need people who know my industries. And then I know I need people who know my customers. Right. Mm -hmm. As two separate. I I consider those separate because there are more industries than we that we touch than there are customers. Right. And so I basically in my mind had segmented out our fundraise to make sure that we hit all of those buckets. And so we ended up with investors from each of those sections, which was really great, which meant, you know, there was a section of it that I was like, okay, at least this much of it, I want to make sure to raise from people who know the oil and gas industry or who are in the oil and gas industry and can help advise and steer and coach me and, and tell me when I'm way off base and mm-hmm. and have a, have a vested interest to do so, right? And to help me have conversations and learn and build out our product. And so, you know, Cathaxis has been awesome. Mm-hmm. Mark introduced us. He's amazing. If yeah. anybody out there is looking for funding, go find Mark Friday. Um, he's super helpful. But he's, I mean, I think he's just, he's been really patient and understands that it's not my industry. Right. And mm-hmm. so, so finding, you know, people like that, that will be very open with me and, and who know what we're doing has been great. It's definitely a different investment scene here in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's very different type of investor. And less so
1: Patagonia vest.
2: A lot less Patagonia vest, <laughs> a lot less blue bottle, you know, cold brew.
1: Well, Can we talk about this a little bit? Because there are so many discrepancies between the investors here and the investors on the coast, whether that's Silicon Valley or New York. And so what are some of the main differences that you see with the groups here compared to groups in the Bay Area?
2: Mm. I mean, the main one is a, I think... Bay Area VCs are more used to taking more risk. Mm -hmm. I think many of the investment firms that I've seen in Houston are connected to PE funds, right? And so they're used to investing in things where they can look at, you know, financial track records, they can look at revenue projections, they can look at all of this, you know, numerical data to base and justify their decision. Mm -hmm. But when you're working with a a company as early stage as mine, we don't necessarily have that yet, right? Yeah. We can look at what we think the industry is doing, and we can look at the fact that, you know, the geospatial industry is doubling in you know the next 3 years and only has one main dominant player. We can look at the fact that you know IoT devices are just skyrocketing. We can look at overall industry trends, but we can't necessarily say okay, here's exactly what our revenue looked like, you know, last quarter and the quarter before and here's our projections and here is all the data on on how we're going to be profitable. And so I think Bay Area investors are used to that, and often they want to see your numbers just to know that you're thinking about it and that you're being diligent, but they never trust your numbers and so yeah. they don't really care. Ultimately, what they, they measure everything against is the founding team, overall industry trends, and, you know, whether or not they think the customers are ready, right? And so I think the signals that the investors look at here are very different from the signals that people look
1: It's at been right a pretty here. serious problem for oil and gas startups the last several years because there is this major gap in the market for early stage financing. And for the reason that you just pointed out, you know, you go to coastal VCs, they'll take more risk on an early stage, you know, maybe pre-revenue startup to where here, you know, there's just not access to that capital. And it's getting better, especially over the last year or so. But, you know, it's definitely, you know, you can look at the valuations that you can get out of Silicon Valley to compared to, you know, what you get here in Houston. The cost of capital here in Houston's always kind of been high if you uh-huh. are able to secure early stage funding. It's just also but, hard
0: to go to Silicon Valley and be like…
1: So oil and gas, and they're just like, no, (laughs) we don't understand (laughs) it. We don't want to invest. On that point, I mean, one of the things that was kind of a driver for us to start this podcast was, you know, I had several coastal VCs reach out and like, hey, where can we learn about what's going on in oil and gas tech? And at the time, there wasn't a place where you could go hear about all the technologies and what was happening as a whole. And so that was a driver for us starting the show. We always said we wanted to bridge the gap between Silicon Valley and oil and gas. So it's kind of why we started doing that. Now you see, you know, you have Founders Fund and who else plug and play a couple of other active VCs from Silicon Valley that are focusing on oil and gas. So. If,
0: you're, if you're in Silicon Valley and you listen to the show and you're a VC, let us know. Yep. Send us a message. Founders
1: Fun listens to us.
2: Or if I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you what I actually think of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Reach out to Rachel. She'll give you the dirt on them. <laughs> so real quick, you know, before you just said before y'all went for y'all seed round, you were able to get a enterprise solution up and running to get those military contracts. So, how did you go about doing that? Did you develop this yourself, or who kind of took who took yeah, that workload of actually I developing mean, it?
2: I'm a mechanical engineer, right, and an organizational theorist. I am not a software engineer. Yeah. And so, actually, our very first check came from B Partners, a VC in the Bay Area. And they legitimately invested in the company when it was me and a PowerPoint. So back to like people being willing to take risks. They're like, this woman who is not a computer scientist is telling us about this software that she's (laughs) going to build and it's going to change the world. And she seems to have her wits about her and have a good plan and have like, you know, how she's going to roll this out and how she's going to, you know, stage these industries and all of it. But yeah, essentially we got our first check about a year ago and it was legitimately just me in a PowerPoint and then I used that that very first, you know, almost angel size check to hire an engineer to build the first MVP and we we iterated on that, started putting it in front of people, used that to then get R&D funds with the military after we were able to prove out like hey, this is what we're doing. We have the technical competence. We know we know the right buttons to push. We know how to get Permission to do this and then it spiraled from there but yeah i mean that first check was a was a leap of faith on my investors part and they they came in on our seat as well solid bit they've been they've been a great 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 partner i mean to any startups listening to this if you can find investors that just truly deeply believe in you and who have your back and who you can be fully transparent with it's really good for everyone right because they Mm -hmm. they need you to succeed and you need to succeed. And so the more transparent you can be about every single risk and about every single thing that you're, you're contemplating and trying to learn, the more helpful your investors will be. And so it ends up being a great cycle back and forth. We just had a conversation
1: investors. with a founder that was in our office yesterday and we were talking about this, how important it is to find the right investors and not just take capital from anyone just because it's capital which
2: is way easier said than done
1: it is absolutely that's why you know listening to how strategic you were with picking your partners you know that that's something that you don't hear people you know really putting that much thought into but he's actually telling us a story so he's from you know he's a oilfield service hand this is background and he went to fly out to san francisco to meet with a vc and that vc took five minutes with him and was just a complete asshole from the sounds of it and the minute he mentioned oil and gas the guy was like nope and send them out and so you know just because there's a capital firm that's interested in you maybe even give you a term sheet doesn't mean that they're necessarily the right partner but like you said, if you're in a position where you do need the capital, you don't always have that luxury of yeah being picky
2: yeah but,
1: so before we wrap up, What are y'all's plans for the rest of 2019? I like to ask this question. I know it's a broad question, but obviously you're making a heavy push into oil and gas. We can narrow it down a little bit. Are you guys going to focus on growing in upstream sector, midstream? Do you guys have your sights set on any oil and gas related goals for the end of the year?
2: Yeah, I mean, the primary focus as to the, you know, we were talking about the, the actual projects and types of activities people are doing on the platform. And so obviously upstream has made the most sense for us. Oddly enough, we've had a little bit of a few things start to snowball in midstream as well. And so we might we might end up kind of switching our focus there. I'm trying to learn both as fast as possible. But, um, you know, I can only sponge up information as as quickly as I can. But, you know, the, the main focus for the rest of 2019, you know, we only have six months left is to find really great partners. Right. Not just customers, but partners. So customers who are willing to come in with us you know spend a lot of time with me with my engineers saying hey this is what it's doing now here's what we really need and we need we need those first customers who are going to help drive the functionality of the platform and be really heavily involved so that's that's the goal for the rest of 2019 is you know closing in on those and then and then working really closely with those customers in the same way that we we did with the military early on to you know sit down with the end users and make sure that we were building what they needed and that's the that's the main focus there.
1: Awesome. So if people are listening to this podcast and they're interested in Geosite, they're interested in working with you guys, where can they find you? What's your website?
2: Yeah. So our website is geosite, G-E-O-S-I-T-E dot I-O. Okay. We also have a Twitter. It's just at Geosite Inc. Yep. I'll have
1: to add you. Don't laugh when you see my handle. It's the oil gun. I just <laughs> <laughs> never changed it's just stuck, so. <laughs> All right. So if you're listening and you guys want to reach out to GeoSite, you can go to their website. Are you on LinkedIn also, Rachel? Yes, I am. Awesome. So we'll have your LinkedIn in the show notes. Appreciate you taking the time to come out on the show. Really excited yeah, to see coming. what you guys are working on.
2: Thank you. All
1: right, guys. If you enjoyed
0: the show, please take two seconds to give us a
1: rating review. If
0: you have any questions for us, you know, we've been talking about doing a QA for a long time and we haven't done it yet. So, if you have any questions, reach out. We get questions all the time privately, but say, hey, it's for the show. Maybe we'll do a QA episode one day. Like we said, check out Rachel, check out GeoSight, and we'll catch you guys in the next episode.